Breadbox Media Programming is brought to you by... Introducing the redesigned CatholicSingles.com, featuring new ways that put the spotlight on the person and their faith, not just a profile picture. For the past 20 years, faithful Catholics have used CatholicSingles.com, and the reimagined CatholicSingles.com website is ready to help single Catholics take the next step in sharing meaningful relationships with other faithful Catholics. Remember, CatholicSingles.com for faith, fellowship, and love. CMF Curo is the country's first Catholic healthcare ministry to provide an affordable health sharing solution rooted in Catholic teaching and community. Learn more at mycatholichealthcare.com. That's mycatholichealthcare.com. CMF Curo, healthcare fully alive. What are you doing this Lent? The St. Paul Center is streaming their newest video Bible study for free starting Ash Wednesday. Based on Scott Hahn's renowned covenantal theology, this is a study no one should miss. Invite your friends, Catholic or not. Don't miss your chance to see this premium study for free. Go to stpaulcenter.com to sign up today. Welcome to this 11th episode of Characters of the Reformation by Hilaire Belloc. I'm Father Dwight Longenecker. Thank you for listening. So far, we've been going through the different Tudor monarchs of England and seeing how much the Reformation actually turns on the hinges of the dramatic events in England in the 16th century. The plot thickens, as they say, and we move on now to the House of Stuart, Mary Stuart, otherwise known as Mary, Queen of Scots. Mary Stuart. The first thing to appreciate about Mary Stuart is that she was the legitimate Queen of England after the death of Mary Tudor. Each of the other important points in connection with her, her fascination, her individual character, her follies, her courage, her later heroism, and what may almost be called her martyrdom, have their rightful place but we must beware of putting them in the wrong order. Protestant history, and therefore our official history, such as it is taught in the English universities and has spread throughout English literature, and I should say around the English-speaking world, in textbooks and fiction, gave a thoroughly wrong perspective of this as every other essential matter in the English Reformation. One would gather from this official version and its effects in general literature that Mary Stuart was a sort of untoward accident interfering with the normal process of English political life in the later 16th century. Her presence and her claims are represented as being dreaded by the England of her day, as might be dreaded the presence of an alien body in an organism, which alien body that organism must get rid of if it is to survive. The truth is just the other way. Mary was regarded by the general opinion of the time as the woman who ought by right to be Queen of England. She was certainly legitimate, while Elizabeth, her rival, was as certainly illegitimate by all the moral standards of the day. She stood in her later years not only for the Catholic religion, to which the mass of Englishmen still adhered in general sympathy at least, but also for the principle of the blood royal— the right of men and women to rule by royal descent and by primogeniture. Mary Stuart was, in the eyes of her contemporaries, the legitimate Queen of England, 
for the following reason. She was the senior legitimate descendant of an English king, to wit, Henry the Seventh, who was the father of Henry the Eighth. Henry the Seventh had three children who survived to have children themselves. These three children of Henry the Seventh were Henry, who became Henry the Eighth, Margaret, who became Queen of Scotland, and Mary, who became Queen of France and afterwards the Duchess of Suffolk. Henry VIII had two legitimate children who survived him, Mary Tudor and little Edward. Edward came first because he was male. Mary Tudor was next in succession, according to the ideas and morals of the time. Henry VIII also had two illegitimate children. One, the Duke of Richmond, died young. The other, Elizabeth, survived. She was illegitimate in the eyes of Christendom, generally according to all the ideas of the time, because she was born while the legitimate wife of Henry, Catherine of Aragon, was still alive, that marriage not having been declared null by competent authority, but only at the orders of Henry himself by the hand of Thomas Cranmer. Therefore, when Mary Tudor was dead, one had to look to the descendants of Henry VII's two daughters to find the senior representative of the blood royal who was legitimate. It is true that Henry VIII made a will in which he named his successors after his own children, wherein he included Elizabeth. These successors whom he named were the descendants of Mary, Duchess of Suffolk, his younger sister, and he said nothing about the descendants of Margaret, his older one. It is also true that this will was given the force of a statute by the king in Parliament, but it is false to regard the crown of England as dependent upon a parliamentary title. That theory was invented long after, nor could a king legally name his successor at his own caprice, though it is true that the desires of the monarch in this matter did weigh heavily at the time. What counted most of all with everyone was the sanctity of the blood royal and the rights of seniority. Since Margaret, Queen of Scotland, was the elder daughter of Henry VII, her descendants had the prior claim, rather than the descendants of Mary, the Duchess of Suffolk, who was the younger daughter. The descendants of that Mary, Duchess of Suffolk, were the Ladies Grey, and it will be remembered that the elder of them, Lady Jane Grey, was made a claimant for the throne on that account, because, though she was of the junior branch, she was Protestant. They tried to put her on the throne after the death of Edward instead of Mary Tudor. Of the elder sister, Margaret, the first descendant was her son, the King of Scotland, but he was dead, and the second was that son's only child, Mary Stuart. Mary Stuart was, therefore, by all ideas of the time, the person who had the right to be Queen of England when Mary Tudor died. On that, the whole of this story turns. When Mary Stuart's young husband, the King of France, died, she was only in her eighteenth year. She was only henceforward Queen Dowager of France, and there could be no question of an amalgamation of the two thrones of England and France. Still, she was French-bred and represented French influence, and her mother of the great French house of Guise had been the regent in Scotland, so she was still a thoroughly foreign claimant in English eyes. And that feeling was emphasized when she went back to Scotland as queen the next year, landing some months before her 19th birthday. So strong was the feeling that her claim might succeed that Cecil, Queen Elizabeth's minister, was all for getting hold of her and keeping her prisoner. 
and an attempt was made to seize her as she sailed past the eastern coasts of England on her way north. The attempt failed through fog, but luck would have it that Cecil had his way in the long run after all, and Mary became his captive. And this is the way it happened. When Mary landed in Scotland, the religious revolution, which, as we have seen, had made some little progress in England, though not much, which in Germany had swept everything into violent turmoil, and which in France was soon to bring about prolonged civil war, had in Scotland achieved a very great measure of success. Calvinism had become the enthusiastic creed of a minority, burning with zeal and determined to succeed. The majority were not similarly zealous for the defense of the church, which in Scotland had become thoroughly corrupt. Into this anarchy, Mary was plunged. For seven years, her invincible courage still maintained her as Queen of Scotland, but her temperament ruined what small chances she had of maintaining her position. We must remember in her favor that she was a woman of a special fascination, which in a sense she exercises to this day and that yet it was her misfortune to be married first to a sickly boy even younger than herself, the King of France, who died before she was eighteen, and next, by her own judgment and error, she married her cousin Darnley, a debauched and worthless character. She was accused falsely of having taken part in the murder of Darnley. The act was really that of the rebel Scottish nobles, but it was widely believed that she was guilty of it, and still more widely believed that she was, at any rate, cognizant of what was in the wind. It was her temperament again that made her fall a victim to Bothwell, one of her own great nobles in Scotland, a masterly man to whom she succumbed. Though she was the representative of Catholicism, she married him with Calvinistic rites, and as he was universally regarded as at least one of the murderers of her first husband, the scandal was enormous. She was imprisoned, she escaped, she was defeated, and in 1568, in her 26th year, she escaped, unarmed and without resources, over the border into England, trusting to the promised protection of her cousin Elizabeth. From that moment, of course, she was actually in Cecil's power. She was held first virtually, then actually as a prisoner, and so remained for nearly twenty years. Now, during all those twenty years, Mary Stuart's position in the eyes of Europe and in the eyes of many Englishmen was that of the legitimate Queen of England, imprisoned by the government of a usurper. With that attitude, the bulk of Englishmen did not agree. They were used to the Tudor dynasty, they had been familiar throughout her life with Elizabeth, who was now upon the throne, and had been for now ten years the figurehead, at least, of government, and a vigorous figurehead, though really ruled by Cecil. Yet there was a large minority of Englishmen who felt so strongly in the matter that they would have put Mary Stuart upon the throne, or at any rate have insisted upon her succeeding Elizabeth, for it was getting more and more certain that Elizabeth was incapable of having an heir. There was a rebellion in Mary's favor, which was crushed by Cecil's government with the utmost barbarity, and thenceforward her immediate cause was lost. Cecil's main reason for getting Mary out of the way was the fact that he was the head of the clique of new millionaires who could not be certain of their continued power unless Catholicism were crushed. And a second reason was that through the growing Protestantism of Scotland— Cecil and the English government could become the protectors of Scotland, which kingdom this policy in the long run wholly subjected to English influence, until at last, long after Cecil's death, the two countries were merged into one, and Scotland, though Scotsmen to this day will never admit it, became just a province of English rule. 
Now, to put Mary Stewart to death was an enormity, yet the demand for it was present and open, and Cecil worked for it with all his might against every moral obstacle. And he finally succeeded. A pretext had to be found, and it was found in this manner. Cecil's man Walsingham, his head spy, and extremely efficient at his trade, sent an agent provocateur, which is called in modern English slang a narc or a spy, to stir up one more of the numerable plots against Elizabeth abroad. This agent, a renegade Catholic of the name of Gifford, egged on by a group of hot-headed people, refugee Catholics in France, with a rich and romantic young man named Babington as their nominal head, to plot the release of Mary Stuart from captivity, to put her on the throne of England, and at least to constrain and, if necessary, to kill Elizabeth. To devise rebellion against the reigning sovereign, and especially to envisage her death, was high treason, and the essential of Walsingham's action was to make out a case that Mary Stuart was party to the plot, and particularly to the death of Elizabeth. In order to make out this case, a system was devised whereby letters passing from the conspirators to Mary Stuart and from her to all in the outside world could be read without her knowledge. A go-between was suborned, who was supposed to be a faithful adherent of Mary's, but was really a traitor in the pay of Walsingham and his officials. In one of these letters, sent by Babington, allusion was made to the killing of Elizabeth. Mary replied to it. Did she, in that reply, take part in the project for the killing of the reigning English queen? Walsingham said she did. She herself always vehemently denied it. She repeatedly challenged her prosecutors to produce the original drafts of their letters, which they refused to do. On their unsupported word, she was condemned to death. But Elizabeth appreciated what her responsibility would be in the eyes of all Europe, and what an abominable thing it was to bring an anointed sovereign and her own cousin, and legitimate heir for that matter, the true Queen of England, to the scaffold. But Cecil was too powerful for Elizabeth. He was her master. The warrant had been signed, but Elizabeth had not given her assent to its being acted upon. Cecil took that responsibility upon himself, and without Elizabeth's permission had Mary Stuart beheaded on February 8th, 1587. The outrage raised a prodigious storm throughout Christendom. Philip of Spain launched the Armada against England to avenge it, and the Armada failed. All this group of events ending in this failure of the Armada made up the decisive and final crisis and success of the English Reformation. Thenceforward, Cecil's increasingly successful plan to stamp out Catholicism and instigate the new religion was successful and there would be no going back. Mary Stuart's son, James, whom she had not seen since he was a baby, was brought up a Calvinist through Cecil's influence and kept in the pay of Cecil's government. He shamefully acquiesced in his mother's death and had his reward by being introduced to the English throne on the death of Elizabeth by Cecil's son, Robert. He reigned as James I of England and James VI of Scotland, uniting the two nations under one head. Thank you for listening to this episode of Characters of the Reformation by Hilaire Belloc. If you've enjoyed it, I hope you'll go over to my blog and follow some of the conversation there, read my blog posts, listen to some of the other podcasts, and if you can, become a donor subscriber and help to support my work and help to support getting these messages out to many more people all over the world. Thank you again for listening. Breadbox Media Programming is brought to you by Jack Kane Ford. Find your next Ford Tough vehicle at CaneFord.com. Woodhill Community Center. Have a hand in the heart of the city. 
support their mission with your donations at woodhillcommunitycenter.org. Toyota in Nicholasville Superstore. Online consultants are standing by right now to help you find your next Toyota. Visit toyotaonnicholasville.com. Lexus of Lexington, home of the best-selling Lexus IS. Find yours today at lexusoflexington.com.